Thank you for downloading this documentary from RTE Radio 1. For more information, visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one. Take a look at the prices now. That's the gents. You see the gents, Ross and Rains. They're like 50 the trade price, 50, selling at 69.80. The ladies, they were like, they are first class ladies, Ross and comfort shoes. Mm. It's always them there. Used to make the officer shoes for the army. Or boots, you know the kind of things I had there, that thing. Mm. That was the sandal, the gent sandal. They were all leather shoes, leather sole. Style that thing. And there was a... The priest, there was a, a shoe deal or glassy kid. And it's... Yeah, we used to, there was a shop somewhere beside the Pro Cathedral in Dublin that used to get them. Never had any trouble, always looking for them. <laughs> there was no floor of priests that thing. Yeah, that was the boot. Yeah. That's a nice boot there, yeah. isn't it? Oh, yeah, couldn't get enough of them. See, black, this kid, the priest, and all the people wearing them, the old type priests. Oh, sure, they were marvellous. No, I, I, I don't believe in it. Uh, shoes, even the present times, are as good as them. But actually, look at that. You only have to look at the prices in there. Yeah, that's 50 shillings retailing yeah. at 69 and 9. So there was about a pound profit on that. Yeah. Oh, it was a great team. Mr Ross, he was a very clever man, you know, and managing director. You know, he worked. Put them in Leicester, like. And all the English men were great shoemakers. I don't think there's anyone who touched the, the shoemakers. Like, you know, they, they, they were great. They were hard to understand them first talking. But all in all, should the ladies' shoes or that? I don't know, that's the other one they had. You know, they were very stylish. Unfortunately, the boot tea that I was telling you about is not in it. The and that boot tea today, I see them still wearing it. Yeah. You know, it's probably a copy. Yeah. But it wouldn't be leather sole. quite a lot of skill involved in some of the jobs being done because I had a, a small knowledge of producing shoes and I, I was amazed at the time the amount of skill needed to make a good shoe and presumably that all sort of disappeared. There, there, there were very skilled trades. Um, there were, uh, the one that springs to mind was there were cutters and I know that if a cutter made a slight mistake it cost money because the piece of leather had to be thrown away. 
but it wasn't a simple task that people might have thought. And uh, I know that some of that came from Leicester in England, and the sons of people who had come from England uh, continued on that trade and stayed in the town. And so you'll see, na- you'll see English names, you'll still see English names here uh, that uh, are uh, central England uh, would, would have been their origins. But the uh, like people like Brown and Green and maybe Harris, uh, uh, the names that you wouldn't associate with Dundalk. Like Sid Lester, he, he was a foreman. He would have been over my father. And George Fetch, Albert Tams, Florence Watkins. She was a forewoman in, in Rawson's. And her pal Tessie Chute. There were two forewomen. And my mother worked under the, 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 those for, for a number of years. But there were many, many other people in it, you know. I'm not sure now how many came over, but there was quite a number of English in, in Rawson's. I'm not sure who came in the first lot. And then my father came in the second lot. I'm sure maybe six months or so between them, I'm, I'm not sure. But my father was, was um, a Leicester man. He was born in Seist in Leicester in 1903. And um, Rawson's actually um, had their place in Leicester, and I think they wanted to expand into Ireland. So they decided that uh, they would set up a place in Dundalk. And um, he, he had a mate called Billy Winkless. And they were here for quite a while, and Billy Winkless sort of... Was started to go with a, a pal of my mother's, a girl called May Doherty. And um, through May Doherty and Bill going together, they introduced my father to my mother. She worked in Rawson's at the time, and that's how they got started. They got married in 1937. So he worked he right up to 1958 in Rawson's, in the clicking room. He was a foreman, and um, he took ill with, with TB um, about 1957 or so. And he was admitted to Hilltop Sanatorium, as it was called in the, in the town here, in 1958, October 58. And he was there until 19, until December 1960. And he came out then, and then he went back for a while to the factory, but he, he wasn't well enough. So he um, had to more or less retire. And uh, 1961, in February 61, he got very ill and it only lasted a couple of weeks, he died then. Coming from school, I left school at 14. Oh, you were glad to have a job. It was so hard to get work, you know, and you could leave school at 14, you can't now, but... Uh, everybody was looking for work, that's the way it was. But I got in anyway, one of the lucky ones, and I was working in the warehouse. And I worked there all for a few years before I went into the factory. There was more money in the factory. And in uh, 1940, uh, I left the factory. There was four of us joined the army. That was the emergency. And then in 1945, when I, you got your job back, and I was back, and I was working in the factory, and then I got back to the warehouse, and I was there ever until the, the last day. Well, I started in Rawson's in 1936, and it had been already uh, manufacturing footwear from 1932. 
so I wouldn't be regarded as a newcomer. I was one of a few young people at that time. A lot had joined when in 1932, but they had, they'd be in their early 20s at this time. So I started really at the bottom of the ladder. And uh, I was at a very minor job fitting up lasts for production. What age were you? Fifteen. I was at a secondary school, but I left it because uh, I wasn't working hard and I was fearful of the outcome of exams. So unknown to my parents, I went down one night and I got a job, got started and went home and told them. There was an argument and a row in the house over it, but I stuck to my guns and I decided to stay. But after a year or so, I would have easily backed out if I could. But I had burned my boats, so to speak. I found it very hard at first. You had to get up very early and walk to work. I hadn't a bicycle. There were about 700, maybe more, people working in Rawson's. And very few of them had bicycles. A bicycle would cost a minimum of £5 at that time. But after a few months, my father decided he bought me a bicycle. He was very comfortably off financially and was disappointed that I left school and he was prepared to send us in those days to the university. But uh, study was the furthest thing from my mind at that time. I, I was 14 years of age on a Friday, the 6th of December, and the following Monday... I got into Rawson's, into the Sandals. The poor man that time was a Freddie Hurst. He lived on Davenue Road, you know. And then I worked there for a couple of years, but it was only a part-time job in Rawson's, the Sandals. You only made them for the summer, you know. So then one day I was there, and I was out in the... We were outside walking, and uh, a man called George Lester, an English man, he was a foreman over in the clicking room. And he says to me, uh, see, I'm just watching you there, see, would you like to walk in the second room? Oh, God, I say, love, because the brother walked in the gym. And uh, well, he says, listen, see, start next Monday in the second room. Well, what are you all? See, I fixed that up. So I started in the second room, like in about two years after the sandals. So I walked in the second room then until it burned in 67. I mean, oh, it was a great place. The foreman there was Sid Lester. He was another. He was a brother of George's, and I knew all the lads. That you know, geez, they were all locals. Rawson's was <coughs> was in the military barracks, you know, in the military barracks, and we used to go down the Point Road to go into the the sideway in, because the first big building was the clicking room upstairs, and the next building was the the. the the box making, they used to make, the boxes used to come in flats and flats, you know, lorry loaded flat. And there was women there and they'd put the boxes together, stick them together, you know, and that. And then, that's all right, when we come up, the offices then were just facing that, that was the last place. And then the welter was turning your corner to the left and the welter, the welter, making the welter shoes, which is not too many welter shoes we made now. But anyway, that's what they worked. And then when you come on up, then there was a big tower and a big square in the, in the barrack. But there was a big tower and there was a clock on it. And just on the left-hand side of the clock 
was the, a chap called Brian McGuinness. Brian was foreman in the bar, in the warehouse. And and then the next place was a man called McComish. He used to do all the rubbish and things like that. And then started building then a place down in the holler, just off that. That was a clicking room, and they made the machine room. You just walk into a big, big, big street. The clicking room was on the left. There were about 10,000 pair of lasts. Shoes are made on lasts, which are shapes. They are made, lasts are made mainly from hardwood, like maple and beech. In those days, there were no plastic lasts. Uh, They're quite costly, and we had maybe a total of 20,000 pairs. We had, had them in sizes and half sizes, and in fittings, with fittings. They could be B-fitting, D-fitting, C-fitting, you know, wider or narrow fitting, in the same style. So it was a very costly thing to have lasts, and they would go out of fashion after a few years. Now, the men's style's not so common as the women's. They'd go out of fashion nearly every year. So you had to cost the cost of the lasts into your costing, you know, to mar- your margin, your profit. You had these, uh, there weren't conveyors in those days, there were what they call racks, and each rack at those, in those days would take 24 pair of lasts. So you had to get a ticket and get the correct lasts out to meet the ticket and have the uppers, the insoles, and all the components put on the rack and sent to the first uh, major operation in the process, which was insole tacking. I mean, the production would have been less than it was a few years later. As people progressed, like they became more proficient and uh, their output increased and their wages increased. I remember envying people on very sophisticated machines but they were very highly skilled. Some of the f- jobs, you'd be maybe 12 months on them before you'd be really very good, you know. So you had a great admiration for these people, like you know, and kind of envied them and hoped you'd get on like that, you know. My grandmother, who's a McCollin from Drogheda, um, she was working in the mills in Armagh, there were basket makers in Drada, but she she went to Armagh. I can't remember why. And her husband James, that'd be my mother's father. He worked on the on the, the railway GNR. And he, he was a signalman, and he was transferred to Dundalk. And they all came to Dundalk in the sort of nineteen nineteen or around that. And um, he worked on the railway up here. You see, so my mother worked in Taylor's Tweed factory. It was called made coat clothes. And with her sister, and um, then when Rawson's opened, you know things seem to be better money and so forth. So they went to Rawson's, and um, she worked in in um, in Rawson's. But in oh, about nineteen sixty-five-ish, the work began to become scarce in my mother's department anyway, and they'd be out on short time. More times they'd be in, 
So it wasn't enough to keep the house going. So she applied to Connolly's Blackthorn Shoes. And about 1965, I think she started in Black... She had left Rawson's and started in, in Blackthorn Shoes. And she was there until she retired in 1979. And um, she only died, actually, in, in 2001. She was 88, she died. She um, was a machinist. You know, she sewed the uppers on the shoes and so forth, you know. And she was very, very good, actually, with leather. She was a real artist with leather. She could turn her hand to anything that way, you know. I suppose there was, it sounds maybe ridiculous, but it's a highly labour-intensive industry. And there'd be at least maybe eight to 900 separate operations in a pair of shoes. So it starts with the, the last and the designer. He envisaged what you're going to, what he hopes to sell to the public. And then he makes a model pair and if this is approved, then <clears throat> the whole thing is geared now for mass production. So from the model, they had a machine which was very sophisticated called a grading machine. And there they would grade from the, the designer's patterns, a whole set of patterns and in sizes and half sizes. It was all done on a system of geometry, but it was very accurate. Our products were all leather. There might be the occasional uh, rubber sole shear, but at that time there was no such thing as polyurethane or injection moulded PVC or vulcanising of rubber. They all came in later and caused uh, their own problems, really. But the skills were very, very high. And the reputation of the product, especially in the men's factory, was very high. And uh, we won huge orders in America and in Britain. And we made under contract footwear for Lotus of England. Uh, and uh, Saxon of Kilmarnock in Scotland. We manufactured all their goods under licence. Our designs and our grading of patterns and everything was done on the premises and was really very highly skilled. There was a ladies' factory which produced about uh, 1,500 pairs a day and the men's factory produced a thousand pairs a day, and the children's factory about twelve hundred a day. That was sacrosanct. You couldn't go home till you had the production done. And there was always problems with absenteeism that militated against output. Our machines break down, parts breaking and have to be replaced or waiting on a part coming in from Leicester. Oh, there was tough times in Italy. You know, the shops used to be mad looking for the shoes. Oh, and the warehouse would be always busy. You wouldn't be able to loiter around at all. 
The warehouse was very clannish. Everybody knew their job and you hadn't much trouble. There was two used to be supervising in the warehouse, but when I took over, that was the arrangements I made with the boss. That there's only going to be one, that was me. And that's the way I worked out. I never had any trouble with Mr Austin or any of them. Yeah, Hugh McCann was telling me he was a hard man to work for, Ross. Oh, tough man. But when I was in the warehouse, when I got the supervisor's job, I had to go in there nearly every day to him. But um, I got on well with him. Mr Reeve was the managing director, but it was the boss, Mr Rawson, and Mrs Rawson was the tough ones. I had to face them. (laughs) We had many clashes. If delivery wasn't made in time or anything, and there was one time they made a lady's boot, like up to the knee, and uh, it was coming near the Christmas time, and the country was mad looking for these bits. And in fact, the ladies' factory changed over to making nothing only the bits. And we had three vans, a big one and two small ones. And I rang the Dublin places in Henry Street and Talbot Street to see where to take a delivery at night. So they were all agreeable to open at a certain time and I sent two fellas up in the van and emptied it. But the next morning he sent for me and he was shouting all the orders he had in the table looking for the bits. And uh, when I told him what happened, he didn't know what to say. Mm. <laughs> he, he, got, he got confused. And uh, he told me, that's all right, go back to the warehouse. But <laughs> he got a shock. He didn't think it was possible that time for the shops to do that, but they were mad looking for them. And uh, it was a success anyway. But when we finished the year, that'd be the 31st of December, I think it was stock taken after that. All we had in the warehouse was three pair of boots, which was unbelievable. It was massive. Massive, that's the only way you could describe it. But he was a tough boss, but... I did well with him, financially and that. Couldn't complain that way, no complaints there. But we had three vans in the warehouse and they had to be away every day. You know, we'd only one van first, a big one. And there was a delivery for Sligo and for a a wholesale of woods, I think. Sligo, WNA woods or something. And I took a chance in the small van and I sent the delivery. I had only one delivery of sandals, 1,500 or something over. The van left at six in the mo- at 8 in the morning and there was uh, only the driver. It was just a one delivery enough and he was back at 6 in the evening. There was another clash with him. 
He didn't know. I didn't ask for permission. He said, you don't have to ask for permission. When they compared the price with CAE and our delivery, we, we were doing it for half the price. So then they got a second van, we van after that. So I was white-haired boy. They, they had the reputation of being strict and tough. And I think they earned it, the reputation. Uh, there's a book written about the footwear industry. I, I haven't got... I had it here, I don't know. I loaned it to someone. And Rawson's is described as being very autocratic. Uh, but I suppose they were very straight. And if you'd done your work, there'd be no problems. But delinquents now, uh, well, they wouldn't be born very cheerfully, you know. I rarely saw him. But I believe in the early years before I went into the industry, he would be in the factory frequently. And uh, the English supervisors and departmental managers, I believe, used to tremble when he'd come in, you know. He was liable to shout or throw anything around, you know. But he himself, I found, to me, he was very fair himself and very straight. I remember on one occasion, now I must be fair, he was kind to me uh, in this way that I had a brother who got ill down in Tralee and uh, he had fallen very ill and he was in hospital. And word came through to the factory for me that he was near death's door. And uh, the old man, as we called him, the boss, overheard this in the office and he immediately arranged that the managing director would drive me to Dublin and one of our reps would drive me to Tralee. Now, he lived till he was 84 or 85. He was, I imagine generally, he was feared more than he was loved. Small man. You know, but he... Uh... <laughs> Small man. I was ten years and I was became a supervisor. Uh, I I thought it was very good. Everybody looked up to the supervisor in those days, and here now I was the supervisor, and I was the first Irish man in the company to be made a supervisor. It had its drawbacks because I was made supervisor of the men that I came up with. And a lot of them, most of them were much older than me. So uh, it was more difficult to get a ready response than if you came in as a cross-channel executive and nobody knew you. They all knew you and they knew your weaknesses and your faults and failings. And uh, sometimes some of them uh, wouldn't be behind the door and letting you know. I realised 
especially when I'd be in my early 20s, that I was at a disadvantage. So I decided to go back and do the Leaving Cert. From that then, I did uh, economics and social science and I did management studies and technology. I had to do science for the footwear industry exams. It's a lot of chemistry and tannages and fabrics and plastics and all these things. When I got qualified, uh, finally, uh, top management uh, asked me, was it my final exams? And I said it was. Now, I envisaged all this study to stay in the industry and use it for the good of the company and hopefully (coughs) to progress to uh, a senior management job. But I was told uh, quite clearly that uh, I would not make top management, that I wasn't ruthless. I knew I wasn't ruthless. And uh, I'd ne- I could never be ruthless. So I decided then that I was leaving. But I was deciding it like somebody in the house if they had it rather leaving. I had nowhere to go, really. But I was qualified for a lectureship, and uh, out of the blue, this was established in Northern Ireland. It was supposed to come up with the Department of Education here in the Republic, and I knew I would have the... It was the only one with the qualifications that I would get it. But it didn't ever come up here, but it did come up in the north. Funny enough, I thought I'd feel lonely. And I remember the night I left, and I waited for everybody to go, and I walked around the place that I had walked around thousands and thousands of times, and I didn't feel sad at all. I felt it was a relief. And it was a whole new challenge and a whole new future. I was actually coming home from holidays when you seen the smoke on the sky, even though it's about a mile away. I just couldn't believe it. Gone overnight. I think it was the end of August, like, you may say it was near Christmas. However, you're going to turn to it. It was like the end of the world. Didn't know where to turn. And then I was sent for the anyway. Uh, we were all down at the fire. Uh, I had to open the warehouse. They were putting stuff in it. There was near the area where the fire was. But then I was in the following day. I was there for about a month. While they were getting any of the stock that was there, had it, it had to be cleared out. I was very sad. Like, 
staff was so big, you know, and then the workers just didn't know where to throw him. It was the last man or anything. The only one that was there after me was the driver, Mr. Ross. Oh, not Mr. Ross, and he's old Mrs. Ross. Uh, he was there with him from the very start. Yes, I remember um, hearing about it and we went down to... Um, actually, an uncle of mine, which my mother's brother, happened to be up for a few days staying with us at the time. Like my father was dead at this stage, about six years. And uh, we went down in the car and there was sort of fire brigades and hoses all over the place, but we didn't know how bad it was, whether, sort of whether, it, was, whether it was bad enough to, to close it for good or whether, you know, it was... It was a, you know, a minor enough to reopen, but seemingly it was a bad enough fire. So um, it unfortunately didn't open anymore, you know. Well, I was stationed in Banbridge, but I was still living in Dundalk. And uh, funny enough, I saw the fire that night. I was coming from the evening church service, and uh, I went down. I told my wife, I'm going down. I think that's Rawson's factory. And she said to me, what could you do? She could do nothing down there. Well, I said, I suppose so, but I spent 30 years of my life and I'll see the end of it. So I went down and the place was a holocaust. Two-thirds of the place, well, half of it at least was burned. The other half was intact. But... uh, For some reason, the company decided that they were not going to reopen and uh, that they were going into voluntary liquidation. And they paid out in full, the shareholders, paid in full. I had some, well, I had a fair few ordinary shares in the company and got back the whole lot. And uh, it was a terrible blow. At that time, the labour force were down to about 600. But 600, after the Great Northern Railway had closed in Dundalk, with maybe the best part of a 1,000 men on it, was a terrible blow to the town. And I think now, while I wasn't, I was 18 months left them at the time, the redundancy that they got was minimal. It was tragic. And to see such skilled craftsmen out of work, and women, it was really very, very sad. Came after a time of comparative uh, prosperity. The biggest blow to the town uh, with my growing up and working here was when the railway closed down. It seemed to me that that was the biggest and most staggering blow that the town suffered. But there had been a concerted effort in the early 60s among industrialists and business people to get things up and running. And to some extent it did work. But when when Rossens closed down, it seemed to be the beginning and the end of the shoe factories. The end of the shoe factories came with Europe, strangely enough. That was about 72. And after that... The shoe factory business only lasts for about another 10 years or so as a mass employment industry. There would be people in managerial jobs, people in skilled jobs, 
people who are only just maybe labourer skills. And uh, it was a cross-section of the town, I suppose, really. But it also would have meant a blow to shops and all that sort of thing, and people be paying for houses, and I, they couldn't... They, they, probably the property market dropped, although I, I'm only speaking from memory, but I'm sure it must have. It's very hard to tell, but I would have guessed that only about half of them got employment around town. Connolly's factory, I know, took on quite a few. Maybe some got into Clark's, although I think that was unlikely, as many were taken on there. And strangely enough, I discovered that about 30 of them got jobs in, in a light industry to which they were, for which they weren't trained at all. But it was work at the time. And then, as for the remainder of the people, they either went on the dole or emigrated. And I suppose that anybody who really was ambitious or had things to do uh, went to, got on the boat for England, and that was as simple as that. A lot of them wouldn't have come back. A lot of them wouldn't. And their families probably went to England as well. Half of them never got work after. The, the, the factory, like... There was a lot of middle-aged people. You know, like, even in your 40s and 50s, they had very poor chance of getting work. If you're in your 20s and 30s, you, you could do it. But once you got over 30, there was no work, like, you know. Oh, some of them never worked out. You were lucky to get work. I was always lucky. I consider that I was never off. You know, it was off till Christmas, all right, the first year. But after that, I'd be working somewhere. You had to take in. To finish up, they had six girls, five boys. There used to be no one around this area. We walked in Rawson's. Like seven or eight hundred was a, was a colossal amount of people. And see, the, in the railway there was fifteen hundred men. And then with the Rawson, well, it was impossible nearly to walk. Oh, there were big queues for signing on. Although I, I, I wasn't much on the label, but there wasn't much money on it. It's a case I had to go out and look for work. But I was lucky. That's the main thing. I had to be lucky, yeah. You know, and the children all grew up. My mother died when I was a young supervisor. I was a supervisor at 24, and uh, my mother died shortly after that. She was a very young woman, 56, and she died with a heart complaint. My father saw me promoted to be manager of the men's factory. But when I was a lad, he often would tell his customers he'll be a teacher or he'll be a solicitor. But he never saw me a teacher. He died. 
He died shortly before I got the appointment, and he would have loved to have seen that. I found, looking back now, it was a hard road, but uh, it was a great training ground. I found, no matter where I went in the footwear industry, that I was very well equipped with the training we got in Rawson's. I never knew of any place that could give you the same discipline and training. It was tough, but it turned out good through like, you know. Ah, time flies, doesn't it? If you've enjoyed this documentary, you might like to try other RTE Radio podcasts. Visit rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash podcast.